Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure, is sponsored by SJNL General Contractors. They are licensed in both Alabama and Tennessee, and they provide services such as mass grading, storm drainage, sewer and concrete improvement, asphalt paving, erosion control, demolition, and heavy hauling. If you need any of these services, contact them 931-433-4660, 931-433-4660. Also, they are in need of heavy equipment operators, concrete finishers, CDL dump truck drivers, and pipe layers. If you're interested in employment with this family-owned business, you can go to the website www.sjnl.com. That's www.sjnl.com. The high-pitched squeal of a police scanner. The little rectangle lights track from left to right. And while it's doing this high-pitched beep, the music starts. Five men in black uniforms run by at a close camera angle and snatch M16 rifles out of a horizontal rack. And then they emerge at the top of a staircase out of a basement office and jump into the back of a black armored vehicle. The music playing is the theme from the television series SWAT. If you owned the 45 single, it was played by Rhythm Heritage, a kind of a disco group. But the television theme was actually played by the writer, Barry Devorzen, and his own orchestra in an arrangement done by Dominic Hauser. While that familiar music was playing, as a 12-year-old boy in 1975, I'd watch Dominic Luca, played by Mark Shearer, jump over the edge of a building and come to rest on the, the middle of the building with a rope. And he would make two bounces and land on the ground and turn with a flourish. And I was locked into that TV screen every time SWAT came on. I didn't know it was called repelling at the time. I have since learned to repel and, and repelled lots of places off of buildings, inside buildings, deep into the pit up in Woodville. I have repelled into chapel a couple of times at Harding University and even out of a helicopter. I did not have any idea how my linking of repelling and SWAT would influence most of my adult life. I've been working with a real SWAT team as a chaplain since 1992. I actually get to repel with them some. I had no idea as a little boy being fascinated by repelling and being fascinated by SWAT how important those four letters, S-W-A-T, would be in my adult life. Before I was working with the Huntsville SWAT team as a chaplain, as a youth minister, I started a project to help children get used to being in front of audiences and learning to take simple everyday experiences and share their faith, and we created a drama troupe, and the drama troupe was called SWAT. SWAT stood for Skits with a Truth, and instead of wearing costumes or T-shirts, all the performers wore uh, black flight suits. And we used a blackout format on the stage. I'm still working uh, with that drama troupe. It's no longer done by teenagers. It's six adult guys 
and we travel not extensively, but we travel some around the country and perform at youth rallies and at camps. Our our biggest venue is a thing called CYC. Uh, the last time we were there, there were about fourteen thousand children present with adults, and uh, we've been able to be their guest both in uh, Pigeon Forge and in Dallas. But before there was SWAT, the drama troupe. And before I was involved with SWAT, the police group, and by the way, you'll hear me talk about SWAT, and I'll always make a differentiation between the two teams. Um, don't ever get confused with which group I'm talking about. Uh, you don't want the guys that I do skits with rescuing hostages, and you don't want the guys who rescue hostages to do skits at your youth rally. <laughs> but prior to that, in the fall of 1981, as a student at Harding University, I got asked would I like to be a member of SWAT. And just the name itself got an immediate yes, and then a what is it? Students working and teaching. They were going to take some of us students, both boys and girls, and they were going to send us out to small area churches around Searcy, Arkansas. We've got all these energetic students who come from all over the country to be students at Harding and instead of going to the University Church or, or the, the, the Church of Christ in Searcy or the downtown Church of Christ where there are thousands of people, why not take this energy, this enthusiasm, and let these young college students go out to some of these smaller churches who are struggling and maybe teach Bible classes, maybe have an opportunity to preach some, but just basically give a shot in the arm to some of these churches. So I signed up. I said, sure, I'll be part of the SWAT team, students working and teaching. My assignment was to visit a little church on Sunday morning in Possum Grape, Arkansas. Yes, there is such a place, Possum Grape, Arkansas. There's even a Toad Suck, Arkansas, but I digress. Somewhere between getting my assignment and the actual execution of such, one of the guys in the group came to me and said, you know, Lonnie, I've got relatives in Possum Grape, Arkansas, and I would love to go there on Sunday rather than where I've been assigned to. Would you swap assignments with me? And I said, absolutely. And I ended up getting into an old 1968 Chevrolet Impala named West Wind on a beautiful fall Sunday morning in Searcy, Arkansas, and driving about 20 miles north of Searcy to a little community called Velvet Ridge and walked into the Velvet Ridge Church of Christ prepared if they asked me to teach a Bible class or lead a prayer or assist with the communion or even preach at some point. What I was unprepared for was to the meeting of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl named Jackie, J-A-C-Q-U-E, Lynn, L-Y-N-N, Wallace. The W-A-L-L-I-S Wallaces, not the A-C-E Wallaces. If you looked at her name written out, Jackie Lynn Wallace looked like Jacqueline Wallace, but it was not. It was Jackie Lynn. I think maybe her mom was a, well, a fan of a Jacqueline Onassis Kennedy or Kennedy Onassis or whatever it was back in the day. Of all the things I was prepared for, I was unprepared for meeting that young lady. After church, her mom invited all of us college kids over to their house. They must have had a heads up. You're going to have an infusion of college kids at your church that day. And so we went over to their home, a beautiful house built on the little hillside. Her dad built it with his hands out of field rocks about a mile up a dirt road. 
and we sat around a, a ping pong table and she served us Connie Wallace's famous homemade spaghetti. That afternoon, we got out on the basketball court. The uh, Her dad had poured a slab about the size of a half of a court so that her brother and she could play basketball. And I'm out here playing basketball with these two uh, teenage kids in Velvet Ridge, Arkansas. Now, I'm not a good basketball player, never have been a good basketball player, never will be a good basketball player, but I was unprepared for this tiny little girl to be a 25-foot outside shooter. She was a gunner, and she would trash talk. She'd get that ball, dribble out on the perimeter rather than inside the lane, where if I had any hope of being effective, it was under the lane, uh, because at my height and, and my stockiness, if I had a basketball number, it was going to be five because you get five fouls. And on the last great day, if you have any fouls left, you are wrong. But she'd stand out there on the perimeter and drain that basketball hoop and then would trash talk and smack talk. Eventually, we ended up under the net together trying to get a ball. I put two fingers against her little tiny shoulder and extended my arm like Bruce Lee does in the two-inch punch. I didn't punch her. I just pushed her. And as I looked up to catch that rebound, she came back under that rim. She planted her left foot against my right ankle and swung her hips into my leg just between my knee and my hip. I think the police would call that a common peroneal strike and crashed me to the ground. Now, I'm not a large man, never have been. But I've always been fairly muscular, fairly coordinated. My only real hobby at the time was rock climbing and wrestling. And very rarely had I been taken off my feet by a man, much less by this tiny little girl in Arkansas. And as soon as I hit the ground, those blue eyes flashed. And I knew I was probably in trouble. Over the years... Her competitiveness has, has shown that she's a better softball player than me, that she's a better ping-pong player than me. The only thing I've ever beat her at consistently is wrestling, which she doesn't do voluntarily, and, and racquetball. Other than that, oh, well, climbing, I can outclimb her. Other than that, uh, our relationship over the years has been one where she's been the superior athlete. I was unprepared for how she would change my life. I wasn't cocky per se, but I guess cavalier might be the idea. I had obtained a nickname in high school from a very popular guy and a very popular cheerleader. They began to call me Lonzo, and I signed my artwork with Lonzo. And I was a cartoonist at Harding University for the newspaper, and, and I signed my artwork Lonzo. And everybody on campus called me Lonzo. I was so cool at the time that a lot of people didn't even know I had a last name. Nobody called me Lonzo Jones. It was just Lonzo. Jackie Lynn Wallace has never called me Lonzo. She's called me Jones or Jonesy. And just the simple fact that she wouldn't use that term made her stand out to me of all the voices in my life that were saying, Lonzo, Lonzo, Lonzo. Hers was always just Jones or Jonesy. She'd sit in my Bible class when I was teaching Bible class at Velvet Ridge, Arkansas, and I would go over a verse, and she would say, hey, my Bible doesn't say that. And I'd say, what do you mean your Bible doesn't say that? What are you reading, the Mishnah? She would say, no, no, my Bible doesn't. Well, my Bible says that, and I'm a divinity student. I'm a Bible major. 
at Harding University. And if we were Catholic, my word should be next to the Pope. And if we were in space and, and, and the space people attended the churches of Christ, my word would be next to Yoda. What do you mean your Bible doesn't say that? But she forced me to teach in context and not a list of debate points or proof text. Eventually, I would preach some at Velvet Ridge, Arkansas, and I would stand in the back of the building, and people would come out of the building and shake your hand and tell you you'd done a good job, and, and that's what you do with young ministers. And it's kind of a weird thing that, you know, we, we have these young men come to our churches, and, and they preach, and then we lie to them as we walk out. Great job, kid. Good job. She would come by, stop in front of me, look me in the eye, and go, well, you told us some things that we did wrong. You told us some things that we needed to improve on, but you didn't tell us how to fix it. You wasted our time. And she would walk out the door. And I began to study differently, and I began to preach differently because she was right. If you don't present a problem with a solution, why even talk about the problem? Over the years, that competition maybe even the the need to try to impress her with my preaching or my teaching caused me to be a better Bible student and caused us to have a connection that we had some things in common that went beyond liking sports or liking the outdoors. We, we had a connection that was deeper than that, and I began to think that it might be a possibility that I would date this girl. I, I remember telling Paul Richardson, and Paul and I were good friends at school, and I remember telling him, I want to really ask this girl from Velvet Ridge out. Now, I'm a college student, and she's a high school student, and I told Paul, I said, I'm afraid if I ask her out, I'll never ask anybody else out again. But I got the opportunity to speak at a, at a banquet. They'd asked me to be an after-dinner speaker at one of the clubs of formal banquets, and so I approached Jackie's dad. We I'd known her for several years now. She was 16 at the time. And I approached her dad and said, you know, I would like to ask Jackie to be my escort at this banquet I'm speaking at, but I wanted your permission. And Jack said, I don't care what she wants to do. I'm not going with you. And that was his permission to ask her out. So for our first date, I asked her to be uh, to accompany me. And, and, and I was poor. I didn't have any money in school. I drove this old beat-up car. I was living off of a meal ticket, and occasionally some contributions would come in from people who were nice and send me five or ten bucks in the mail. And this was a chance to take her to a really, really nice restaurant in a really, really nice setting, and I thought that'd be a good way to impress her. I said, I've been asked to speak at this banquet. Would you go with me? She said she would. What should I wear? Oh, it's going to be a nice banquet. Wear some church clothes. She showed up at, at the banquet dressed very nice for church. But all the other girls there, the college girls there, and, and, and she was a, a high school girl there, all the college girls there were in formals, prom dresses. And she was not. She forgave me. We continued to date, but I hear about it about every four years when we start talking about what's the appropriate wear for the occasion or the evening. Uh, really, that wasn't our first date. When, when she came to campus to spend the night with a friend of mine, a, a girlfriend who was in the dorms, and she was going to spend the night with Gail and then the next day go with me to the banquet. Uh, really, our first date was we went out and we played racquetball. 
on campus. And like I said, you know, she beat me at ping pong, shoot me off of a pool table, uh, beat me in basketball without even concentrating. And so I took her to play racquetball. And I'd been playing racquetball since high school. And I remember playing racquetball and watching her hold that racket and take a step like she's going to swing at a softball and flatten that racket out and miss and spin to the ground and sit there and pound the ground with that little racket. Eventually, she asked me how I was able to dive and roll and, and hit a ball. I, we've learned now that since she's been a volleyball coach, that's known as a barrel roll. I always call it a combat roll, uh, either rolling and horizontally or even actually doing a little shoulder roll and she wanted to learn that so we left the racquetball court and we turned over the cheerleading mats and we rolled up her socks and we spent the evening teaching her how to dive and come up from a roll oh i knew i was smitten at that point here's a girl who wants to learn to combat roll eventually our dating became very serious and it was pretty obvious that, that this was going somewhere. I was in the backyard of her grandmother's house. Granny Wallace, this big, raw-boned woman whose husband had grown uh, strawberries at the Velvet Ridge area and, and was known for a, as a strawberry producer. We were out behind the pump house, and she was working in a garden. I was out there doing something. I was on the property uh, waiting for Jackie to get out of practice or get out of school or something. And I was there with Granny Wallace. And, she looked at me and she said, you're going to take Jackie Lynn away, aren't you? I looked at her very closely and surely that was sweat running down her cheek. I didn't think this old country woman out here hoeing in the garden was capable of tears. I said, yes, ma'am, I'm going to ask her to go with me when I leave school. That's as close as I got to saying the term, I'm going to ask her to marry me to Granny Wallace. She was holding a hoe after all. She pursed her lips together. She didn't smile. She didn't frown. She looked me dead in the eye and gave a quick nod. And I don't believe in psychic powers, but what that woman did when she looked at me and became very, very serious with that tear on her cheek concerning her granddaughter. Changed my life. I knew it was time to quit being cavalier. I knew it was time to quit being a make-believe hero. I realized then that if this girl left her family, her childhood friends, and her last name, and was willing to follow me around on my adventures... I'd better get some things straight. I was no longer adventuring in the world. I was leading someone through the world into eternity. And that her needs would have to come before my rights. And that I had to quit worrying about, did I like this or did it suit me or did I want this? But I ought to be willing to do anything that I could to provide for her physically, financially, emotionally and spiritually and standing there in the backyard with that old woman from Velvet Ridge, Arkansas I got my commission to start acting like a man we did 
eventually marry. And she did not marry me because I had any potential to be wealthy. She did not marry me because I was dark or handsome or tall or debonair. She married me because she thought she and I could go to heaven together. She did not marry me because she thought I was perfect. In fact, I do not possess the capacity for perfection. Today, this podcast will be launched on December the 22nd. It's our 36th anniversary from when she promised that she would marry me and I promised to be her husband. And in those 36 years, she has never once gone to bed with me at night with me being a perfect person. But every single day for those 36 years when she has woken up beside me, she's had a perfect husband. Not because I am and not because I possess that capacity, but because she forgives me every night. She possesses an amazing capacity to choose happiness. She possesses an unbelievable capacity to understand that life is not getting what you want, but just wanting what you get. And she's dealt with me in some hard times and when we didn't make any money and when we didn't have anything. And she built our life around us, not about things. And every single day she starts her day with a perfect husband because she's willing to forgive me and let me be perfect at the beginning of the day. That's really the way God deals with us. He starts off with us every day new, giving us a second, 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 second chance. And he does that not because it does him any good, but because it does us good. Jackie's ability to love me is really summed up in in a, a statement I heard by a guy named Matt Evans years and years later after we were married. Love is the intentional and if necessary, personally costly investment into the good of another. It does not rely on reciprocity or return of investment, and it is not contingent upon the person that you love deserving the love you give them. That's been my relationship with Jackie Lynn Wallace for 36 years. She's made an intentional and personally costly investment into someone who did not deserve it and really could not adequately return it. But for the last 36 years, we've had an amazing adventure together. And God has done the same thing for us. He has made a personally costly investment into us. We can't do anything for God. We can't return anything to God. He doesn't need us for anything. He makes a costly investment into us just for our good. And we don't even deserve it. That's what real love is. That's what real relationships are about. And on the occasion of my 36th wedding anniversary, and I didn't plan this. The numbers just fell that this podcast would come out then. I thought I would share with you a little bit of the story of me and Jackie. When we were married 25 years, 
in order to surprise her on our 25th wedding anniversary. And I thought, what can I do to surprise her when, when we were dating uh, on Valentine's Valentine's Day? Uh, she was driving to school or riding to school on a school bus. I'd hung a, a, an eight-foot sign off the interstate bridge that she had to drive under to go to school and had drawn uh, uh, my trademark at the time, mouse on it with the Jackie, I love you. And made quite the stir uh, with a little bit of vandalism uh, on the interstate bridge and then kind of embarrassing her in front of all of her friends. Our 25th wedding anniversary, I thought, what can I do? I can't hang a sign on the bridge. People know who I am. They know that I climb. I thought the only thing I could really, really do to really, really shock her or surprise her or write her a song. I don't possess a musical capacity. I can't sing. I'm probably tone deaf. And the one thing that would shock her on our 25th anniversary was to write her a song. And and I did. And I reached out to some musical friends of mine. A young man named Chad Brown uh, arranged it, set it to music, and actually sang it. And it's never gotten any airplay. She's heard it. And it was played for her when we went on our on our cruise on our 25th anniversary. So if you'll be patient and listen to the post-roll of this, I've included a little song. It's entitled Jackie's Song. It's performed and arranged by Chad Brown, but the words are Balani Jones. Thank you for letting me share this moment as you keep up with Jones. There are 32 miles of cave passages in Cumberland Cavern. 333 feet underground is the Volcano Room. The Volcano Room is the site for the youth rally known as Erupt. It's an underground youth rally. It's an annual event. It takes place in October. The next Erupt is scheduled for October of 2021. Erupt is a sponsor of Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. If you'd like more information, you may contact them at eruptyouthrally at gmail.com. That's eruptyouthrally at gmail.com. Or check out their website for more information. Three W's and a dot, eruptyouthrally.com, www.eruptyouthrally.com. Told her 
Twenty-five. 